Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. I hope your Christmas celebrations were joyful. Welcome on this last day of two, or last Sunday of 2013. <clears throat> In today's sermon, we are going to look at Matthew chapter 2. And I like to think of Matthew chapter 2 as the rest of the story. Uh, Advent and Christmas is now all behind us. And I'm not sure about you folks, uh, what you've done, but Hannah wasn't interested in putting off the cleaning up after Christmas, so our Christmas tree has already been taken down and has been burned, already. The Christmas decorations are back in their box, and we're ready for life as usual. And yet, the Christmas story isn't really over yet. Matthew chapter 2 contains stories that aren't found anywhere else in sacred scripture and that play an important part in the coming of the Christ child. So let's take a look now, uh, beginning with Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. <clears throat> so first here in, in Matthew 2, we read of the Magi, the wise men from the east. Now despite the song, there were not necessarily only three, three of them, and they were probably not necessarily kings. They were probably astrologers or priests. They may have been from Persia or Medea or Babylon, we're not really sure. Uh, But they traveled all the way from their home because they had seen a star in the sky that informed them of the birth of a king. When they arrived in Jerusalem sometime after Jesus had been born, they asked the following question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star 
in the east and have come to worship him. Now, I find it quite incredible that God had sent them all the way from the east to ask that question to a man named Herod. There was no question that they could have asked that was more calculated to stir up excitement and trouble in Jerusalem at that time than that question. And they asked Herod of all people. There was probably no person in Jerusalem, perhaps in the history of the the city, that would have been more troubled and vexed by that question than Herod. The king of the Jews? Herod thought he was the king of the Jews. And yet, the Lord directed those wise men to Herod. Now, we'll get to Herod more in in a minute. Uh, But first, let's follow the story. So Herod is torn up by that question. He's troubled by it. And it says that the people were troubled by it also. And so Herod gathered together all the chief priests and the scribes and asks them, okay, so what about this king of the Jews? What do you know about him? And so the the priests and the scribes replied and said, they pointed to Micah chapter 5, Uh, Which reads, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the answer is clear. This king was to be born in Bethlehem. Herod calls the, the Magi back and sends them on their way to Bethlehem. But before he does, he asks for more information about that star. Being altogether paranoid, as we'll learn more about in a minute, Herod gathers as much information as he can about this child and the star that foretold his coming, and he lies to the Magi about his purpose for asking them those questions. He sends them off, hoping that they'll report back to him. Now, before we move on to the second half of this chapter, I want to point out two things about verses 9 through 12. First, it it says that the star which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. I think Tim mentioned this a few weeks ago in a sermon, but, I think it, but it bears repeating. The Magi traveled all the way to Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, which is a distance of about 10 to 12 miles, Jerusalem to Bethlehem. The star not only guided them to the place where Jesus was, it actually stood over the place. Now, frankly, I don't know exactly what that means, but I know it's incredible. If you think about stars in the sky and how in the world it is that a particular star stood over a particular house, it's incredible. I also want to point out that Scripture records that the Magi fell down and worshipped the Christ child. This is is one of a number of instances recorded in Scripture where men fall down and actually worship Jesus. Mary and Joseph must have understood that Jesus was God, otherwise they would have never accepted for a man to fall down and worship him. When he grew older, Jesus himself allowed men to worship him and he didn't rebuke them for it. When men tried to worship his apostles, however, they were rebuked and they were told to stop. 
Many people deny the divinity of Jesus Christ, not least of which are the Muslims and the Jews, of course. And yet Jesus was worshipped by numerous people in the Gospels, and this is one of the strongest testimonies to the divinity of Christ. He himself testified that he was the one sent by God. He was God in the flesh. Now, after this brief overview of the first half of the chapter, I want to move on to the next, next half, beginning in verse 13. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. First, I think it's important to point out that Jesus... The king of the universe, the Lord of all creation, has to flee to Egypt. At Christmas time, we are reminded that the Savior of the world came as a helpless, weak little baby. And if that wasn't foolishness enough, that helpless little baby is immediately in danger for his life. Near the end of his ministry, when Jesus is being taken into custody to be crucified, One of his disciples takes out a sword and cuts off the ear of one of the slaves of the high priest. Jesus immediately tells his disciple to put the sword away. And he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? If it was true at the time when Jesus was a full-grown man, certainly it was true that God could have sent those legions of angels to protect Jesus when he was a helpless little baby. And yet, as part of God's perfect plan, he entrusted Jesus' safety to Joseph, his earthly father. This is the foolishness of God that is wiser than the wisdom of men. And can you imagine what must have been in the mind of Joseph? (laughs) That baby's earthly father? First of all, he plans to get married, right? And then he finds out that his betrothed is already pregnant. It's a bit of a downer. And then he's told in a dream to go ahead and marry this woman. And so he thinks, okay, I'll do it. So he marries Mary, and immediately he has to go be a part of a census. So he takes his pregnant wife with him to Bethlehem. Okay, this is not an auspicious beginning for a new father, right? And so... His dear wife gives birth to this son that was miraculously in her womb, in a stable, right? And so then they are in Bethlehem for a time, and shortly, uh, you know, months or a year, over a year, I'm not quite sure, 
But shortly after the baby is born, they're told that they have to flee to Egypt, of all places. <clears throat> because the king of the Jews, at the time, Herod, wants to murder that baby. Now, that is a lot for a young father to deal with at the outset of his marriage and his new family. But there's a lesson here about the foolishness. The, the lesson here is the lesson about the foolishness of the cross. God uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And what this means for us is that we will not necessarily understand everything that is going on as we attempt by faith to put one foot in front of the other. Right? Joseph, in his weakness and frailty, was by faith just putting one foot in front of the other. And many of you are tempted in your life, whatever situation you find yourselves in, to be overwhelmed by the demands of work and family and home and church and the list goes on and on. But have faith for small beginnings and confusing, difficult circumstances. God is pleased to use the foolishness of this world to shame the wise. God is at work and we can't necessarily see the end when we're in the thick of it. <clears throat> so now, I want to talk for a minute about Herod the Great. Herod the Great was born in uh, 73 or 74 B.C., and he reigned in Judah from 37 B.C. until just after Jesus was born. So who was Herod? Herod uh, has been described as a madman and the evil genius of the Judean nation. It is said that he was prepared to commit any crime in order to gratify his unbounded ambition. And it's true. If you know anything about Herod, he was. And yet, he was also the greatest builder in Jewish history. And that's a very important point that we'll get to in a minute. First of all, Herod's father was an Edomite and his mother was an ethnic Arab. But he was raised as a Jew and he considered himself a Jew. Now, who of you remembers who the Edomites were? And just shout it out. Does anybody remember who the Edomites were? Descendants of Esau. Very good, right? Very, very good. Scripture records that Esau went south and settled in Edom, and, was subs and so he was the first Edomite, right? And do, does anybody remember why there was such hatred between the Edomites and the, and the Jews? Just shout it out. One of the things, aside from the fact that they were the descendants of Esau. No one remembers? Birthright? Okay, well that's part of, that's part of them being the descendants of Esau, right? Exodus. Very good. So, when Moses was leading the people out of Egypt, and the, the people were headed back to Canaan... Edom is just south of the kingdom of Israel, right? Between Egypt and the promised land. They were, they were headed back to Canaan, and they asked for safe passage through the land of Edom from the king, king of Edom. And the king of Edom denied their request. He said, no, you may not come through this land. And he brought all his army arrayed against them, this ragtag bunch of refugees, and said, you may not come. And he forced them to go around Edom and into the, Canaan, uh, the land of Canaan from another route. 
Now, later, we read uh, in Numbers, or rather, um, uh, rather later in, in the Old Testament, we read uh, that both David and Saul fought battles against the Edomites, and they essentially turned Edom, the kingdom of Edom, into a vassal state of Israel. Then, even after that, when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, uh, came, that we, the king of Babylon that we read about in the book of Daniel, came through and took the people captive, the Edomites actually helped him to slaughter the Jews, destroy Jerusalem, and destroy the temple. Now, it's, it was the age-old truth that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? The Edomites were delighted to help Nebuchadnezzar destroy Israel during the Babylonian captivity. So you understand that the Jews hated the Edomites, right? Now fast forward to Herod's time. There were many Edomites, half-Jews at the time, who practiced the Jewish religion and considered themselves Jewish. The Jewish ruling class at the time believed that Judea should be ruled by someone who was eligible to serve as a high priest. As an Edomite, Herod was ineligible. However, Herod was also a shrewd and calculating politician, and he knew how to tell the change in the political climate of the world. At the time of Herod, the Macedonian Empire was on the decline, and the Roman Empire was on the ascendancy. In other words, the Greek civilization was giving way to Roman rule all over the the known world. So Herod traveled to Rome and convinced the Roman Senate to establish him as the king of the Jews. From the very beginning, despite his supposed commitment to the Jewish religion, it's clear that Herod was committed to appeasing his Roman masters. After being appointed king of the Jews, he immediately marched out of the Senate in Rome to offer pagan sacrifices at the Temple of Jove. Herod captured Jerusalem as the Roman-appointed king in 37 B.C., He immediately divorced his first wife and married a full-blooded Jewish woman to bolster his standing in social and er, bolster, bolster his social and religious standing. From that time until he died, he was a he was paranoid to the max about anybody challenging his right to rule Judea. Any supposed threat was immediately eliminated. He murdered his own sons, and indeed, he even murdered his fully Jewish wife when he imagined that she posed a threat to him. Now, in any good story, there's always an interesting twist. And the twist in this story is that although Herod was a murderous maniac, he was also a genius of organization and construction. He built fortresses and palaces uh, in various places in Judea and that are even now, you can go see their ruins and they're a wonder to behold. But his greatest achievement, and this is the twist, was the temple. First, here's what Herod said about building the temple. I imagine that, with God's assistance, I have advanced the nation of the Jews to a degree of happiness which they never had before. But since I am now, by God's will, your governor, and I have had peace a long time and have gained great riches and large revenue, and what is the principal filling of all, I am at amity and well regarded by the Romans, who, if I may, say, if I may so say, are the rulers of the whole world, I will do my endeavor to correct uh, that imperfection which hath arisen from the necessity of our affairs and the slavery we have been under formerly, and to make a thankful return after the most pious manner to God 
for what blessings I have received from him by giving me this kingdom, and that by rendering his temple as complete as I am able. Now, I did not really have a proper appreciation for the temple, for this particular temple, the temple that Herod built, until I learned about it preparing for this sermon. The temple that Herod built was truly a wonder of the world. It was a magnificent achievement, and it rivaled any temple anywhere else in the world. It, in the Talmud, it says, He who has not seen Herod's building has never in his life seen a truly grand building. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, has this to say about it. Viewed from without, the sanctuary had everything that could amaze either mind or eyes. Overlaid all round with stout plates of gold, the first rays of sun it reflected so fierce a blaze of fire that those who endeavored to look at it were forced to turn away as if they had looked straight at the sun. To strangers as they approached, it seemed in the distance like a mountain covered with snow, for any part not, not covered with gold was dazzling white. It was glorious. It was the pride and joy of the Jewish nation. And it had been given as a gift from Herod to the Jewish people, to the people of Israel. He knew what they wanted, and he gave it to them. But it came at a price. Herod placed a huge Roman eagle at the entrance of the temple, which the people saw as idolatrous sacrilege. A group of Torah students smashed the eagle, and Herod had them hunted down and burned alive. He then took great pains to avoid such trouble in the future and murdered 46 leading members of the Sanhedrin and appointed his own priest, his own high priest. So this is the king of the Jews when Jesus arrives on the scene, right? And this maniacal, paranoid, bloodthirsty king immediately orders the execution of all the little babies under two years of age in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions. Aside from being a barbarous act of cruelty, it was also simply insane. Herod was very old at the time, and there's no way that a two-year-old baby could have ever been a threat to him in his lifetime. And yet his cruelty knew no bounds. I believe we can draw a number of very important applications from this passage in Matthew about Herod's crime. First of all, I think it's a testimony to God's tender mercy. And why do I say that? Well, uh, specifically, it's a, it's a testimony to God's tender concern for those little babies. God is concerned for the weak and the defenseless. He is their advocate. Nowhere else in the historical record is the fact of those mur murdered babies recorded. Not even Josephus one of our most trusted sources for the history of the Jews, records anything about it. There are a number of possible reasons why it was never recorded by other historians, uh, but I think it's very possible that the reason it was never recorded is because the number of babies was so small. Bethlehem was not a large city, um, and so perhaps the number of babies killed uh, was, was relatively small. In any case, modern commentators sneer at Christians and deny that the event even ever took place. But it's here in the pages of Scripture, and God did not forget it. It is recorded here so that we would not forget it either. So God cares about the weak and the defenseless. Uh, 
Second, I think it's absolutely hilarious that God sent the wise men directly to Herod. Psalm 2 says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The king of heaven laughs at them. I think that the Magi going directly to Herod is kind of like Babe Ruth calling the shot in the 1932 World Series. If you've ever heard the story, it's said that Babe Ruth got to the plate, pointed, and then hit a grand slam homer right uh, where he had pointed. Well, that's kind of the same situation here in, in, uh, in Matthew chapter 2. God sends the Magi directly to Herod. The man who has most uh, incentive to destroy the, the real king of the Jews and says, look what I'm about to do. See if you can stop me. Our God is a jealous God and he will not share his glory with another. All the gods of the nation can be bought and sold with money, sacrifices, your good works, whatever it is. You put a coin in the slot, and God is supposed to fulfill your desires. Herod had figured that game out. He thought he was in control. He knew how to appease the, the Jewish people. He knew how to appease the Roman rulers. He, knew, he thought he knew how to appease God, but he was not in control. God is in his heavens where he rules forevermore. I think the third application that we can draw from this, this passage is that we must beware of politicians bearing gifts. Now, before you tune me out, let me assure you, I don't say this to single out any particular party in our, nation, in our particular nation. In our, in, and in our case, I'd argue that both of our major political par- parties are eager to hand out goodies uh, to their constituents at, a, at a, an amazing rate. But this application simply falls off the page. Herod had given the people of Israel the temple. It was glorious. It was magnificent. It was the pride of the nation. It was everything they ever wanted. They could not be ashamed before any nation on earth because they had the temple. When Jesus was led out into the desert to be tempted, it's not at all an accident that the devil made a point of taking him to the top of the temple and showing him the glory of it and all its surroundings. And when, he was out, when Jesus was out teaching and preaching, one of the disciples said, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And Jesus responded to him by saying, Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Jesus was not interested in this blood-bought temple. He despised it. But Herod, he knew what the people wanted, and he was happy to give it to them. But remember... Esau was Herod's father, and Esau sold his birthright for a pot of stew. The gifts that Herod offered came at a great price. They always do. So what is it that you want? Do you want the temple, or do you want Jesus Christ? Pick one. You cannot have both. You cannot have the the promised riches of this world, whatever they may be, in your particular circumstance, and Jesus Christ. Now, finally, uh, my final application touches on what I think is the great mystery of Herod's crime. That is to say, why did the birth of our blessed Savior have to be attended by one of the most savage, 
brutal crimes in history. Brothers and sisters, this is the Christmas story. Jesus Christ came as a little baby, and because of that perceived threat, other little babies were murdered. Now, we have many children under the age of two in this congregation, right? In my own home, I have two that are in that category, two children that are in that category. Can you even imagine it, having your children taken and simply slaughtered in front of you? Why such brutal terror? It was either John Calvin or Matthew Henry uh, who said uh, that these little babies were the first martyrs, and I think he's right. Jesus himself said that he did not come to bring peace but a sword. And wherever there are real advances of the kingdom of God, all hell breaks loose to thwart them. And so we can often tell where God is at work, not by the advances from victory to victory, but by the tragedies that, that, and the seemingly insurmountable odds. It's very easy for us to forget that we are in the middle of a great and terrible struggle, and there's nothing quite like Christmas season to help us forget it. But we must not forget, and we must work and pray for the establishment of God's kingdom here in Bloomington and around the world. Are you a civilian, or are you a soldier? Now, this reference about Rachel weeping for her children is from Isaiah, or rather from Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah is speaking at the time of the tragedy. Uh, uh, he's speaking at the time of the tragedy of the Babylonian captivity, and he uses Rachel to refer to all the mothers in Israel. Rach, uh, Ra- Rama, Rama is interesting because at the time Jeremiah, at the time of Jeremiah, it was on the dividing line between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Okay, if you remember, at one point in the history of, Ju- of, of the kingdom of Israel, it split, and you had the northern kingdom on the one hand, the kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom, the uh, the, uh, the kingdom of Judah on the, on the other. And Ramah was all, right on that uh, dividing line. It was also, Ramah was also the place where the people were gathered to be deported to Babylon. So it was a place of terrible sorrow and suffering and tragedy. But what's really incredible about the passage in Jeremiah, and particularly Matthew's use of it here in Matthew chapter 2, is that it comes in the middle of some very hopeful prophecies about the nation of Israel. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew could not have picked a better passage to illustrate God's sovereign mercy and kindness in the midst of terrible tragedy and suffering. So I'd like to close today with a section from uh, later in Jeremiah chapter 31. This is beginning with verse 31. This is shortly after the, the verse that talks about Rachel weeping for the loss of her children, for the, the, uh, the loss of her children. It says in verse 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with the, their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, 
and their sin I will remember no more. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. In the midst of this terrible tragedy, God is at work to bring salvation to His people. I'm going to say it again, perhaps for the last time this season. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are good and great and merciful to us. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for this weakness that was truly your strength being displayed for all the nations to behold. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us for our pride and our vain uh, attempts to, to grasp at uh, glory for ourselves, and we pray that instead we would be humble and submit to this King, this King, Jesus Christ. Please, we pray that you'd be with us this day, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.